from chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude therefore who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Here's the text. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Strange paradox that a man dying a criminal's death impaled on two beams of wood, naked and taunted by remorseless enemies, would draw us to him like iron filings to a magnet. You would think that it would be exactly the opposite. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will drive away all men from myself. For the cross was the most repulsive spectacle in the ancient world. What a strange paradox that man would be drawn to the cross. For a Roman citizen, cried Cicero, to be bound is an outrage. To be scourged is a crime. It is almost parricide, he said, to put one to death, a Roman citizen. And what shall I say of crucifixion? There is no word adequate to describe the repulsive enormity of it. End of quote. What a marvelous paradox that man would be drawn to this suffering Savior. And even stranger paradox that the cross would become the supreme means of grace and the strongest bond binding men to God. For it was not just any cross out there on Calvary, but his who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So this lonely man, naked and abused and spat upon, whose life blood was ebbing away, said that he was Son of God. And for three and a half years, as he brought into subjection all the forces of nature and evil, disease and death, that that claim was validated. But now evil men crucify him, and he allows them to crucify him. He who, if it were true that he was Son of God, could have just struck them all with one decisive blow. No wonder his disciples became discouraged. Every one of them but John fled.
And on the road to Emmaus, two of them expressed their despair like this. We had hoped it was he who would redeem Israel. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. How could it possibly be? In 1958, a play opened on Broadway called Heloise. It was the true story of Peter Abelard's love of life, Heloise. Peter Abelard was that 12th century scholar and theologian. And he was in love with Heloise and she with him. And nobody has been able to understand why they believed that they must remain celibate to, to serve God. And nobody could fathom what it meant when she walked away from Peter Abelard and joined a convent. But her sacrifice spoke to him of the love of God and her selflessness reminded him of God's sacrifice and changed his whole concept, his whole theology of the cross. And he developed what is now known as the moral... Uh, influence theory of the cross. This is what he said. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, men will see his suffering and be moved. And when they see his sacrifice, they will bow in submission. Now we know that Peter Abelard's moral influence theory falls far short of all that the Bible teaches about the theology of the cross and what that means and yet it underscored what Jesus had said for all time. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. That there is something magnetic about the cross of Jesus. My question is, what is there about this cross that moves men and touches them and magnetizes them so that we want to wear one around our neck and put one on our lapel and erect one on the steeple of our churches. What is there so powerfully magnetic about the cross of Jesus that made his statement true? Well, I can think of four reasons why the cross is so magnetic. One, it appeals to our understanding Henry Sloan Coffin, once the chaplain to Harbor University, asked a group of Chinese pastors what so moved them, what most impressed them about Jesus. And the oldest of the group responded without hesitation, his washing of the disciples' feet. Something Jesus did, an act, something the significance of which they could identify with, something Jesus did. And it points up an essential difference between the religions of the world and Christianity. For men must be indoctrinated into these ethnic religions. They must study their philosophies. They must probe their mysteries because the religions of the world have their origin in the mind and the soul of man. But Christianity has its origin in an act of God. Not an ideal of God, but an act of God. Something God did that was decisive and concrete and historic that everybody can understand, even a child. I've done it hundreds of times, literally. I've asked little children that I've counseled before baptism, 
What, tell me what you know about Jesus. Tell me what you understand about Jesus. I've asked it hundreds of times, literally. There has never been but one answer. It is always the same. They will answer it like this. He died on the cross for our sins. It's something we can get our hands on and our heart on. And so a young man left his hometown, little town out in the Bergs, and went to the seminary. There he learned such profound things. He learned words he'd never heard before. He heard concepts he'd never thought of before. And he got all of these things together in his mind, wonderful theological truths. He was invited to come back to his little church to preach one, one Sunday. And he thought, man, I will astound them with my knowledge. And so he got it all together, this, these concepts from the, philosoph from the uh, concepts or ideas of the Pentateuch all the way to eschatology and revelation. He put it all in one sermon. He was going to wow them. And so on Saturday afternoon, he walked down in the streets of this little country town so that everybody would know he was there and was going to preach. And a saintly little lady saw him on the street and she engaged his conversation and she said, I hear you're going to preach for us tomorrow. He said, yes, I am. And she said something that buckled his knees. She said, don't forget to say a good word for Jesus. And so he went back to his manuscript and all of a sudden those theological concepts seemed so unimportant. And so he got up on Sunday and exalted Christ. I tell you, we have not come today just to hear what God has said. We've come to be reminded of what God has done. For who can understand all the intricacies of theology and who can probe the mystery of God? There's so much of God shrouded in the darkness of mystery that the greatest preacher could never help you understand it. But when you hold up the cross of Jesus, there's something we can't understand. We can't understand amazing love. And so Pavlova... The famous Russian dancer had finished her dance, interpretive dance, and somebody asked her, tell me what you meant by that dance. And she replied, if I could speak it, would I have danced it? For there are some words that cannot be clothed in words. And there are some things that are unspeakable. And so we have to hold up something that we can understand. We can understand this. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. It appeals to our understanding. Second, it's magnetic because it stirs our deepest emotions. It probes our deepest feelings. It stirs, for example, our sympathy, our pity. Look at the cross and you want to weep. And you experience what the psychologists call empathy. For when you read from the Gospels the passions of our Lord, it's like you experienced it for yourself. Those rough hands that seized him in the garden. That clenched fist that buffeted his blindfolded face before Caiaphas at the mock trial that leather scourge that ripped his skin to shreds, that heavy cross he put on his back, nearly broke his back as he drug it up Skull Hill, those huge spikes that tore into his hands and feet like hot pokers, 
that spear that thrust was thrust into his side, that beaming sun that melted him, those jeering, that jeering mob, those gambling soldiers, that sponge filled with vinegar, you can almost feel the exhaustion and the pain and the misery so that you want to cry, oh God, let him die. And when he did, your heart breaks. And not only does his suffering stir our pity, but the injustice of his trial moves, stirs our moral indignation. This man was innocent. Even the governor who pronounced the sentence said he's guiltless. And that thief hanging on one side of him looked across his suffering body at his companion and said, this man has done nothing amiss. And crucifixion was reserved for the vilest criminal. Anyone with anything but a perverted perspective would know that Jesus was the sweetest, gentlest, kindest, purest, compassionatest man who had ever lived. And so when men in the 5th and 500 A.D. lived by the sword, Clovis, king of the Frankish Empire, was converted to Christianity. And someone read to him the story of his crucifixion. He heard it for the first time. He ripped out his sword and cried, If me and my men had been there, this would have not happened. And so we stand before the cross with our fists clenched and our emotions angry and we think how could such a perversion of justice ever be perpetrated on another human being. And the way he died stirs our admiration. For you can search the annals of history and you'll never find a death like this. I picked up my Dallas Morning News yesterday and read the feature article of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, 50 years ago on Palm Sunday, today on Palm Sunday, was executed in a Nazi prison. On his way to death, he said to his weeping companions, this is the end, for me it's the beginning. And when he died, a Nazi SS doctor said, I have never known a man so supremely committed to the will of God, and I have never seen someone die like that. And you pick up the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you see this man in perfect serenity while others losing it all over the place. And you read how in magnificence and calmness he died. Listen to his words, forgive them for they know not what they do. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. This day you will be with me in paradise. And putting people to death was a common event for Roman soldiers. They did it every day. They, they did it all the time. They were callous to it. They never gave it a second thought. And yet the centurion who saw him die saw his calmness and dignity, saw his his serenity and mastery of self-control and said, surely this was more than a man. This was the Son of God. The cross stirs our deepest emotions. Third, the cross is magnetic because it appeals to our dignity as human beings. 
Have you ever considered the, considered the contrast of Calvary? On the one hand, you have coercion. On the other hand, you have persuasion. On the one hand, you have a Roman Empire that got its way by brutality and brute force. Their, their way of doing things was like this. Find out who opposes us and get rid of them. And there was this emblem of the Roman Empire, a mailed fist, because what they wanted, they got. On the other hand, there's a man who says, lift up my life, lift up my sacrifice, lift up my love, and in the end, it'll win. Someone has said you can't make something grow with a, with a sledgehammer, no matter how hard you pound it. And it is true that there is something persuasive and dynamic about love. You may be familiar with the name Rufus Jones. Rufus Jones was a, a great leader in the Quaker movement, in the Friends religion, religious group. Rufus Jones said it when he was a little boy. His mother said, Rufus, I need you to weed the turnip patch today. And she had been, she's going to be gone for the afternoon. And about the time he got ready to weed the turnip patch, which was really not his um, you know, favorite thing to do, his buddies came by, headed to the favorite fishing hole, and invited him to go. Strong temptation. He thought, I'll come back, I'll get back in time to weed the turnip patch. And so he went with his buddies to the favorite fishing hole. When, you, when you're out your favorite fishing hole, you're not conscious of time. Time passed. When he got home, his mother beat him home. She said, okay, Rufus, come with me to your room. He said, oh, my goodness, I'm going to catch it now. He said, when I went in my room, my mother put me on the bed, and she knelt down in front of me and began to pray. She told God all of her dreams for me, interpreted her dreams for me, what she wanted, thought I would be as a boy and as a, as a, as a, as a man. She told God all that she planned for my life and then how disappointed she was in me. And then he said, she put her hands on my head and prayed this prayer. Oh God, take this son of mine and make him after the divine design. And she walked out of the room and left him alone with God. And he never got over it. If God were to take you by the nap, the scuff of the neck, and he were going to awe you with thunderbolts and frighten you with warnings of judgment, you could, you could fight against that, and you would. You would protest against that. You would dig in, and you would say, my head may be bloody, but in the end it'll be unbound. But what are you going to do about a man, about a God man who would hang himself on a cross and die for you? What are you going to do about that? For when he died there, he demonstrated his deep respect for you as a human being to choose not or choose yes. One last thought. 
There is magnetism in the cross because it appeals to our sense of moral obligation. Somebody's written a novel entitled Barabbas. It pictures this man who was to be executed on a center cross. So they always reserve the center cross for the worst. They all were despicable and horrible and terrible. But the man on the center cross, that, that was reserved for the worst of the three. And Barabbas was such a man. And the novelist pictures him pacing in his cell the day of death. Death is in the air. The stench of it is in the air. And the sound of it is in the air. And Barabbas is pacing in his cell. And all of a sudden the door swings open and the guard said, Barabbas, yes, you're free, go. He thought it was a dream. He thought it was a terrible joke to play. Again, the guard said, Barabbas, you're free. Go, get out of here, leave. And so he did. He stumbled out into the light. It blinded him. And he wondered, what is it? Why am I free? I mean, what has happened? Is there an explanation? So he asked someone on the street. They said, oh, well, there's a... There's a man being crucified today on that center cross for you. And he thought, must be a terrible person. Worse than I, I got to see him. And so he joined the crowd and he stood there transfixed to that center cross looking at the face of that man dying there for him. Now the novel doesn't indicate that Barabbas became a Christian. Better had he died on that cross than what happened to him because he, came a, he became a wanderer, wandering over the face of the earth, haunted and tormented by the vision of that man who died in his place. It must be an incredible thing to know Somebody died for you. It must be incomprehensible to know that someone would die for you in order that you could be better. Like Kilbra's story of the woman pregnant with a child was told, you're going to have to abort your child because when you bring the child to full term, you will die if you don't. She was given the choice. She would not abort her child, she determined. She would give up her life for him. And she told her husband, I'd like to make one request. When our son is old enough to understand, tell him that his mother died so he could live. This boy became an ideal student, great athlete. He's just one of those kids that everybody loved, respected, had dignity, integrity, had a splendid, impeach, unimpeachable reputation, impeccable, impeccable character. And upon his graduation, somebody asked him the secret of the fact. He didn't cave in to peer pressure. He became an ideal person. This was his answer. How could I be anything else? when my mother died so I could be that way. 
How could I be anything else than what I am since he died for me? And so the Archbishop of Paris spoke one day in Roman, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And he told the story about a night some boys, pranksters, came into the chapel. And they bet one of the boys, I bet you won't go into the confessional booth and make a bogus confession to the priest. So he took him up on the bet. And he went in the confessional booth and he came up with this, he had this bogus confessional, just weird stuff, you know, crazy stuff he confessed. The priest knew it was a joke, knew it was a sham. And so when he finished his confessional, he said, now you must pay the consequences of penance. And the boy went out of the confessional booth and he told his friends, okay, where's the money? I did what you, I did the bet. I kept the bet. And they said, no, you, it's not complete yet because you've got to pay the penalty of penance. This was the penalty. Take a candle to the nearest crucifix and hold that candle up until its light shines on the wounds of Jesus and say this, Jesus I know that you suffered and bled and died for me, but I don't give a damn. And so the boy went over to get his money, and he held the candle up to the lights, flickered on the wounds, and he said, Jesus, I know that you, and he choked, and he became emotional, and he the words stuck in his throat until he cried, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, O oh God, could die for me? And the archbishop said, I know that's a true story because I was that boy. For the cross, magnificence and magnetic power is this, that God reaches out into the front pew to these young people and all across this auditorium and gets us by the throat and says, can you be anything but in love with me. Let's pray together. Our Father, you've said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. And now I pray that having been lifted up, the magnetism of your sacrifice would draw us to you. For I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. In the spirit of prayer this morning, these three invitations. An invitation for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He who suffered there says, come and follow me. If you've never 
committed your heart and life to Jesus Christ, I invite you this morning to get up out of your seat and begin to follow Christ. Give Him your heart and life. Maybe you need to place your life under the discipline of a church and serve God together with people bound together to serve God. Or maybe you need to come this morning and recommitment of your life to Jesus Christ. While we stand and sing, I invite you to come.